Well, here on SAFM Literature, it's time for us to talk to our hero of the day. Well, our hero of the day, certainly readers of African literature, will uh, he will need no introduction. Uh, he is Mongani Wali Soroti. Let me tell you a little bit about him. I know he's just arrived in our studio in Johannesburg. Well, he was born in Sophia Town, and he's been writing, I think, since his high school days. He got a fine arts degree in New York at Columbia University. And by contrast, he spent some time in Botswana as an MK cadre. He's also been named as one of a hundred world-class South Africans. And way back, he was also one of the Soweto poets. He has written, I think, five novels, though there may be more. He's received many, many awards, amongst them the prestigious Golden Wreath for a lifetime of achievement in the field of poetry. And he's also, in case you didn't know, the father of Freedom Park in Pretoria, in as much as I think it was his concept. Well, as you hear, and I've only just given you a little touch of what uh, Wally Soroti does, he's led and written through a very full and very productive life, and he continues to produce. His latest novel is called Rumours, and it's kind of an unsettling read as we meet the hero, Keke, who is, or Keke, he's a, a veteran MK Kader himself, whose life has suddenly taken something of a, a downswing as he lo- he's lost his job, his wife, and seemingly his soul. Well, let me uh, introduce you to Mongani Wally Soroti. May I call you Wally? Please. Lovely to have you. Thank you very much for joining us. I feel quite privileged that you are with us here in the studio. Um, I've listed just some of the many things that you've written and done with your life, all of which is very, very impressive. But you have been writing for, I calculated, way over 40 years. Does it feel like you were born to write? Was this something that you knew from the word go? I didn't realize that it's... Something like 40 years. Well, it's probably a bit more, in fact. <laughs> so I should tell you that, but it doesn't matter. It's only numbers. <laughs> well, um, uh, I have been very passionate about writing, and I've had to organize my life and my family's life around it um, so that it is done. Um, so it's something that, a flame that keeps a light inside me. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll get on to your family's life in just a minute, but uh, certainly organizing your own life around it has been um, almost inevitable because in some ways you were as much a freedom writer, a freedom fighter as a freedom writer. And I think that certainly in the early days, your writing was fueled, and, and, and I have to say probably still is, certainly still is, fueled by political activism, by your, your feeling about what's going on here in South Africa. Uh, my country has made me a political animal, and I don't think that will change. In fact, I wish uh, I was much younger to be able to enter into the discourse, political discourse in my country and on the continent, much more uh, uh, deeper than I do. And so uh, I'm sure everything that I write will always reflect something about that. Yes, yes, uh, as I say, inevitably, because that's... That's what's in your head and in your heart, and finally it's going to come out through your hands. My country has made me a political animal. There would have been many ways in which one could deal with um, the politics in the bad old days. You chose the pen, that wasn't the only weapon that you chose, but you you did use your poetry, uh, certainly it was poetry in those early days. Did you feel that you were making a difference? Did you feel that those poems were getting to people so that they may change? You know, it's only now that I get uh, feedback about work that I did in the 70s and 80s, where people come and say to me, uh, you have really inspired us. 
or question the many things that um, are said through poetry or through the novels or through the essays. Uh, so, if there is anything that has happened, I think it has opened a dialogue, and I'm most thankful about that. It has opened, the, the, the writing has opened a dialogue across, across the country. Sometimes even on the continent, I find that. Uh, in that way, I feel very blessed. Uh, because as I, when I started, I don't know if I did that, but when I started, I was saying, it is very important for me to understand those who are voiceless and find a way for, that vo for their voice to inspire me. If that happened, then I'm most happy about it. Did it, when you were writing back in those early days, were, was, was your writing banned? Uh, there was only one book which was banned, uh, um, The Night Keeps Winking, and that is, I, I wrote it when I was in Botswana, and when it appeared in South Africa it was banned, but that's the only one which was banned. So uh, the reason for asking that really is, uh, you know, did, it get you, did your writing get you into trouble? Well, let me share something with you. Uh, in 1969, when I was in detention, uh, everybody, I'm, I'm, I hope, knows who I mean when I say there was somebody called Roy Ress. He was the chief torturer in our country. He recited to me a book before they really put me under serious torture. I'd written a poem about a cat that stalks a bed which is feeling unaware that it is being stalked, and that the, 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 the cat pounced, puts it, put its teeth into the body of the bed, the bed bled and died on the spot. So he did that, you see. And there were three of them in a room, and when he finished reciting that poem, he pounced, they pounced on me. Mm. So that was it. <laughs> that was the time when I... I had to make a decision whether I'll keep writing. I made the decision that I'll keep writing. What a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Have you written, um, I'm, I should know the answer, I know that you've written a number of books, I've got a list of the books that you've written. Have you just considered writing a straight autobiography? No. Do you, do you say that very quickly? Do you never intend to? I'm still too young to do that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's a good answer. <laughs> I suppose, though, in some ways, I'm certainly thinking about rumours here, is that each and every one of your books has an autobiographical component because inevitably you have got these experiences within you that are going to come out. Well, you know, um, having been extremely active in the struggle, I lived within a broad collective and community of people. And the stories of those people I listened to very, very carefully. And I've used them many times to craft um, um, the history, culture of our country through writing. Uh, so it's not really an autobiography. Many of the mm. things which are there are things that I heard from people and I've had to craft them, as I said, to put them in, 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 into creative, uh, uh, creative milieu, so to speak. Things that you've heard from people, but also things that you have felt yourself. Of course. I mean, it's, course. It's, it's resonant or redolent, whatever the word is, you probably would know better, with um, your feelings about South Africa. No, you're correct. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Tell us a little bit about Kleki, the, the hero. He is an MK Kader. He is, uh, as we meet him, his life has fallen apart. As I said, you know, his, his marriage has broken down. He's lost his job. He seems to be a completely lost soul. Tell us about him. Give us, give us a character sketch. You know, um, I think the thing, I don't know what it is that made this great disservice to our country. Uh, uh, South Africans don't really know what is Umkonto Caesar, who are the people who were in it, and what type of people they were. If you were to ask me, I'll say, when I became part and parcel of them, I felt that I was among very fine women and men who had made uh, extremely difficult decisions and had made strong commitment and were very determined. You know, at the time, and that was I think around 1978 when I reintegrated into the ANC and into um, Umkonto Wesizwe. That was around the time when there was a, a slogan that says, that said, spirit of no surrender. I have never ever been inspired uh, by words in that manner. And I think one of the reasons is, is the fact that for us, that was not just a theoretical thing. For us, it was an attempt at turning that into a way of life. And one of the examples that you must, we must always remember about that is Solomon Mashangu, who, when he was sentenced to death, when he was taking his last walk to be hanged, he declared, you know, that his blood will water the tree of revolution. And he did so with integrity, with pride, determination and commitment. Now, when, when, when we look at Keke, we should say that is the context from which he came. And I am aware that many of us, uh, at one point or the other, we did break when we came back here. When we were supposed to really uh, um, um, stand firm. And when I say break, there were things, objective reality, which uh, influenced certain things that we valued very much to almost disintegrate around us. Mm. Some mm. personal some in terms of the movement itself, some more in terms of the new South African Defense, National Defense Force that was going to be, to be formed, some because of deployment, some because of the losses that we suddenly realized we had incurred by, through our commitment. Uh, and KK and there is a metaphor to say, if that did happen, what is there for us to put ourselves together? Yeah. Absolutely. Undealt with issues. And I suppose for Kirke, things just kind of fell apart. Mm -hmm. We're talking to Mongani Wally Sorota here on SFM Literature. And if you'd like to join us, you are welcome. The number to call is 0892 10 2010 08 92 10 2010. Stay tuned.
Hey there, jazz fans, all you head poppers and toe tappers. If you'd like to see some of the coolest freak lips, flow flushes, and balloon lung cats wail on stage, if you'd like to see some of the best jazz acts live, make sure you get down to the Standard Bank Joy of Jazz because the most swinging tunes around are back in town. Jazz is back in the city, so be sure to get down to the Standard Bank Joy of Jazz between 22 and 24 August. For more info, go to joyofjazz.co.za. This is how we. We keep moving South African jazz forward. Standard Bank, moving forward. Unite and celebrate at the Nelson Mandela Sport and Culture Day, 17th August 2013, FNB Stadium. For the first time ever, an explosive sports and music lineup. Bafana Bafana versus Burkina Faso. The Springboks versus Argentina. Soccer Legends. South Africa versus Italy. Followed by a live concert featuring local and international artists. Unite! One man, one nation, one celebration. Get your tickets now at Compu Ticket. Listen up for Shop Shop Children's Program on SAFM with Leon Fisser at 10 minutes to 2, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And it is Shop Shop, it's Shop Shop. Right now it's SAFM Literature here on SAFM and we are talking to Mongani Wallace Soroti about his very latest book which follows hot on the heels, I have to say, of his previous book which was called Revelations, which was written uh, three years ago. This one is called Rumours. What are you, you, I'm going to come back to Keke and his issues, but um, this book came reasonably quickly after your last one. Are you feeling the pressure of saying everything you want to say? <laughs> You know, um, we live in a very dynamic country, mm. extremely dynamic, uh, and I think that is the that is the the, the force that is in me that is saying uh, what. I mean, with rumors, I'm really posing the question: if it is true that rumor is a half truth that goes viral, um, what are we supposed to do? Especially if that rumor can be very detrimental to our country, mm-hmm. to the people of this country. What, what should we do? KK uh, to a certain extent is a metaphor for that also. But I hope that there are many, many voices in rumors which try to um, dialogue around this, you know. Yes, and work work on the repair. I mean, when we first meet Keke, we don't know exactly what you know where his breakdown happened, but we do know that he's in a very very bad state. Mm-hmm. Um, he's dealing with all these things, and it and it gets worse. He goes from you know not dealing with it to, to really not dealing with it. He be, be literally sort of ends up in the gutter. Um, is this is this something with you know again? This is the metaphor for South Africa or maybe for the MK cadres who have not dealt with their stuff I mean he really spirals right down there it's quite tough mm. uh, if, if, if I use the point of reference that I'm talking about fine men and women and some of us went through uh, the take a route I'm really also not talking only about MK mm. uh, there are people who are not MK who shaped their lives as if they were in MK, and maybe also who were not even members of the ANC, but who, through vision, through understanding, through commitment, shaped themselves to fight for freedom in the country, 
and in one way or the other contributed to the efforts of the ANC. I'm also talking to them, uh, and many of many of them, I'm sure, some of them among that whole, you know, we had a mass movement in the country. Uh, some of them must have reached uh, certain points like that. So I'm raising a, a very serious question here. I'm saying when the warriors of the African continent are fatigued, are weary, do they have somewhere to go mm. to heal? Did you go that route yourself? Because you were in imprisonment, um, you were in solitary confinement for some time, and I think when you came out, I think it was your, <coughs> excuse me, your mother who suggested that you try psychiatrist, amongst other things. Did you have you been there yourself? Well, when 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 I came out of detention, I don't know. My mother thought I needed the repair, but the repair that she suggested did not help me, uh, uh, because within minutes of it, I rejected it. And I must say that what really uh, uh, helped me a great deal is what also helped me when I was in detention. At the point at which uh, you are tortured and you realize I can easily break, you must have something to hold on to. And, and I held on to the fact that I want to go back to Alexandra and walk with integrity. So nothing must break. It was not easy. And I'm sure at a certain point uh, uh, one breaks, but I made sure that I walk with integrity when I go back to Alexandra. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and when I say Alexandra is because Alexandra at a, at a certain point was a very strong community where people, if you were in the struggle, really respected you and loved you. And I, I went back to that. And in a sense, I healed there rather than in a psychiatrist room. Yeah. Keki himself gets healed in a very different way. I, mm -hmm. You know, without giving it all away, he does, he goes, he meets a lady by the name of Ami, and he goes to Mali for what do we call spiritual healing or, or cooking. It, it seems you have a very uh, deep understanding of the process that he went through. I, I, I know that you're a trained Sangoma yourself. Is it something that you know about that sort of healing? Yeah, I know, I know very well. We've healed a lot of people in that way. Mm. Uh, you know, um, let me just reveal something to you. Ne? One of the things when you when when you go through the process of uh, initiation in healing, you are surprised when somebody says to you, "We want you to sit for today. We want you to sit here and talk to this tree." And of course, imagine a township boy going to talk to a tree, you know, uh, and you sit there and your mind goes all over the show. And eventually you think, maybe these people are just thinking I'm a fool, you know, stupid or whatever. But it is when you go back to the discussions about your experience of talking to the tree, that in the end realize what was happening. You were asked to find a manner to meditate, uh, which means to explore every little piece of your life. And when you leave the tree and go back to your mentor, he creates a situation where you then have to sit down and discuss your experience of facing a tree and talking to it. Mm. And you'll find that there is very little that you say about the tree, although also the tree was an instrument, you know. So there are things like that which um, happen, which uh, Africans founded for themselves, uh, which 
those which things are also part and parcel of the culture which Africans have fought for themselves. And when I say Africans, uh, I I use it from a non-racial position. Yeah. Uh, and I would hope that uh, the cliche of what an African is in our country can be repaired so that every single person who's lived in this country uh, feels that they're African and can explore things like this and support things like that. And I'm saying this because in the health sector, I think if we were to respect the fact that there is an alternative to allopathic medicine and found a way to learn it and found a way to create a collaboration between the two, what we would have done would have broadened the resource for health in our country. The institution of uh, healing, of healers, which I call the institution of Bungaga, needs serious attention, needs serious reconstruction, needs serious information. At the same time, it has a lot to offer to our country. And that's why I put it at the center the way I put that hopefully we can be co begin the, discuss the discussion which will inform the discourse of this country. Yes, the mind is an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary organ, is it not? And there's, uh, there's a lot of mental activity that goes on, certainly in Keki's head. Uh, he has dreams, he has flashbacks. And but through those, uh, those sort of uh, techniques, if you like, we learn all sorts of other things about himself and about his past and about his healing, and certainly about Ami and uh, what she's offering him. They, I'm just thinking that there's, there's so many things that we need to touch on here. Um, aside from Keki himself, there are all sorts of other people in the book who, as you said right early on, they have things to say and issues to deal with. And there's quite a, there's quite a lot of different issues going on here. If I can just draw attention, for instance, to um, Keki's friend Mandla and his wife Tuli. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a whole sort of like a subplot here, but they are having a very difficult time with their daughters who mm -hmm. get involved in a very mm -hmm. unhappy act called, is it the Rainbow Circle or the Rainbow Act? Well, the Rainbow Act at mm -hmm. school, which is, it's, it's a very unhappy situation, but the, the purpose for bringing in something like that is to sort of contextualize, is it? To, to, you know, to say this is also what's going on in South Africa. You know, uh, there was a dilemma for black people in this country. Uh, public schools, their education was mediocre, and everybody had to run away from that and say, where do we go? And then everybody went into Model C schools. And the Model C schools said, you come here on condition that you abandon everything that you know. And we teach you as if you have never lived before. Uh, many of the young boys and girls who are in Model schools are in a serious crisis. I'll give you an example. When during weekends they go with their parents to go and see their grandparents, they cannot talk because their grandparents can't speak English, they can't speak Setswana or Tsonga or Zulu or Venda. So it's a crisis. Uh, and the grandmothers keep claiming them. And they keep saying, but we don't understand why, what you are doing, because they operate from a very completely different paradigm. Now, through the length and breadth of this country, we have created that, and I had to dramatize that hopefully to draw attention to the nation that there is something that we are doing which can become a powder keg for us. A very serious thing. We intended, we had very good intentions, but 
it seems to me it is not going to work for what we thought it would, you know. Mm. Uh, in the house, uh, uh, you find we are forced to speak English because we have to, force to, have to speak to our children. We are forced to do that. And deep in us we feel, no, I don't want to do this, but what, you, what should we do? Um, so one welcomes the idea of the Department of Education to begin to examine what should be done with African languages. And hopefully when we say that we are not being technical, we should also say, how does that language interact with the culture that was created and how does that culture interact with the languages that, that are spoken? And hopefully, non-African language speakers will also feel that it is right for them to come in because they'll be, they'll be initiating themselves into being Africans in, the, in, uh, in, in an African country, you know. So, those things about Mandla's children, in my view, raise all of those very difficult and complex issues. But the only way I, can, I could do it with the children was to say, Look what, what has happened to the children. And yeah. we should... Yeah. Yes. Yes, language is, uh, you know, as you point out, it's, it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of the kids sort of losing grip on their tradition, on African tradition, African culture, African ritual. And that's something else that comes into the book. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Keki, with his own circle of friends, they have a ritual slaughter. And I think the, the, what I got from it is that you're saying... Listen, we have to not just jettison all these things out. We need, we need to think about them, what they mean. Um, again, it was a it was a method of bringing that right in there. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Nancy, there's a there's a South African discourse that is waiting for us to construct this. At the present at the present moment, in my view, we're operating on a foreign discourse. Uh, and if we allow ourselves to do that, we become uh, professional students of other people. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. When the novel opens, KK is running, and the things that he's, he dreams as he's running remind us that globally we are living in a very dangerous present, you know, where somebody who is a top of the global politics carries a death list in his back pocket and decides who through drones will be killed. The person comes here to our country. I did not feel, and I'm, 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 I, I don't expect that from government, but I did not feel that we as South Africans displayed a knowledge that this man, as he's saying these things that he's saying, he has a death list in his back pocket. And something should have happened. I think there should have been a discourse in this country which says, you know, you are not president of the world. You cannot be. There's no way. And we are opposed to your death list and we are opposed to some of the... Ex- people. Some people tried to do it. But it was so insignificant. I was very shocked. This country, South Africa, is built on protest and demonstration. And I, I had hoped that that protest and demonstration of the 70s or the 80s would emerge, not to be against Americans, but to express our complete displeasure with a person who chooses himself and he says he's the president of presidents. We didn't elect him. He was elected by, president, by Americans 
And one can't fault Americans if they make their choices. But so too, you know, we should be allowed to make our choices without feeling that somebody can, can put them on a death list. And I'm saying that because I put straight the responsibility of uh, Saddam Hussein, who I did not agree with, in the, in the hands of American presidents. So with Gaddafi, our, some of our people are in uh, the ICC, you know, and I'm sure that was that that the order was uh, uh, came from that angle. And some of our the, the people who won elections on the African continent were told you didn't were, were supporting this one. And if you check the reasons, it is obvious that Americans should, uh, Amer- the American uh, administration would do it for the to ensure. Stabil, national stability in their, in their own countries. So, I am saying, when I, arrived, I wrote that chapter, I was also putting an agenda on the nation and saying, are we aware that slowly and slowly it was Tunisia, it was Egypt, it was Libya, it is now Egypt again, it was Cote d'Ivoire, it is DRC, it was Central Africa, and it goes on and on and on. Something needs to happen. Do we have a consciousness which said this is the time where we must understand what the African Union is about, where as a people who have resourced ourselves from nothing and became something out of it, we should resource the African Union? I don't expect that from the media of this country. The, the, the printed media of this country is totally European, it's foreign mm. to this mm. country. Yeah, that comes up in the, in the book as well. I'm just yes. thinking that uh, you may be too young to be writing your autobiography, but you've got plenty of material, plenty of thought material to be starting on your next book, and I've no doubt that that's already underway. Is that, am I right? Of course, yeah. I guess. <laughs> Wally Sorogi, thank you so much. It's been an honour and a pleasure, and thank you very much for your time, and very best of luck with the next book, next book which I, I'm no doubt that we will speak about again very soon. Thank you very much. Nancy, thanks a lot Take for care. the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks. Ungani Wally Sorogi, and his book is called Rumours, and it's published by Dekana.